Colossians 1, it says this, verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That is, that's a mouthful right there, isn't it? That's a lot. Um, we're going to go through it. I think it says something specific to us today. It actually, you could spend probably a month just on that. So I had to pick one thing um, so that we're not in Colossians for six years. But have you, I, I'm going to ask this question, and I want just to posture your minds at least in the right direction. Have you ever been so mad at somebody, so irritated, so frustrated, so hurt, that even the thought of looking at them kind of made you a little sick, graded on you, right? What about the church? Have you, ever known, have you ever had anyone in the church, a brother in the Lord, a sister in the Lord, that has made you so mad, so hurt, so bitter, that just to see them made it difficult for you? You know, so here it is, your church, and then they get out of their car in the parking lot, and you catch a glimpse of them, you know, and you think... There you are, showing up to church, Mr. Holy, you jerk. You know, I mean, it's just going on in your mind. Uh, you need to be here, Mr. Jerk, after what you did to me last week. You know, we just, we're just going over it. Or you see him across the sanctuary or, or the gym, you know, or whatever. And you're thinking, man, I can't stand that guy. I can't stand that person. Every time I'm around that person, and you just start rehearsing all of what this person does. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. And then they come up to you. And then the smile comes up. Hey, how are you doing? And you shake their hand. It's good to see you, you know. Because we can't really, we can't really do anything else but put the smile on, you know. It's hard. It's something that's very... Listen, if that happens anywhere, it's going to happen here. And when I say here, I don't mean just the church. I mean this church even. This church. The deeper we get into community, the more we practice church community, the more reconciliation is going to need to be very well done. Right here, something that we focus on as a church. Because somebody, somebody is going to say the wrong thing at the wrong time, at the wrong place, and it's just going to hit you between the eyes. It's just going to happen. I mean, we're like a big soup of people, right? We all have different pasts, different abuses, different histories, different medications, right? Different syndromes, different whatever going on in our life. We have different uh, marital issues. We have different, I don't know, kid issues, different sex issues, different whatever issue we're bringing into it. And it all floats to the top. We're just a big soup of issues. We're a big ball of hang-ups, as Kevin likes to say, you know? Or a big ball of hang-ups. And we all start bumping into each other in community. It's just a matter of time, isn't it? It's just a matter of time before I say something that makes Jonathan really mad at me. Before Kevin says something that makes Kenan just boil. We have to be good at reconciliation. 
We have to do it. It's important for us. But how? You know, last week we started, we did Colossians 15 through 20 in the first chapter. And I told you last week how Paul had started a song, okay? That part 15 through 20 is actually a song. He started the song last week, he's finishing the song this week, okay? So the music stops this week, I guess, you know? And and last week he talked about how Jesus is preeminent over all of creation. This week he finishes the song by basically Jesus is preeminent over all of new creation, over redemption. And so, we are going to finish the song, and he's going to push right on into the letter. Now, this letter is one that Paul had written to a church that he'd never even been to. Colossae is a church he never stepped foot into, right? Never even been to the city. It was planted by a guy, though, that he had discipled and led to the cross, most likely at Ephesus, right? So, this young, vibrant church, it's doing really good. It's full of hope and life and love. There's a lot of, a lot of just good things going on, especially in community, but... Pressures from the outside, pressures from the inside. You had some smooth talkers, some good teachers, kind of depositing some heresy, depositing some teachings of Jesus plus something, right? Additives. Jesus plus this, this cool Eastern philosophy. You know, the worshiping of angels. Paul hits that a few times in Colossians. That there was actually a stratus, a structure of angels that people could worship. And it was actually what mediated you and God. So you had God, and it wasn't just Jesus that stood in the gap. It was all these angels, too. And depending on where you were at, it, it, it indicated what angel you would worship. And then you had other mystical things kind of seeping in. And then you had the Judaizers saying, well, we don't add all that mystical stuff, and we're maybe not about the angels, but we think you should add this law. We think this work should be added in. So it was all these things added to Jesus to be a mediator for us. That's what Paul is watching. It's flipping him out a little bit. It's freaking him out a little bit. So he writes this letter, and make no mistakes, he's pulling no punches in this letter. He starts off with this thing that we we did last week and this week. Most scholars consider this hymn that he did at the beginning of Colossians. They call it the Great Christology. Because never before and ever after in Scripture do we see such a deliberate and thorough listing of the deity of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's just obnoxious about it, isn't he? Jesus is bigger. Jesus is first. He's before. He's ahead. He's, un- he's unparalleled. He's paramount. He's king. He's every. I mean, he's just obnoxious about it. He's like that guy that says the same thing. I do this to my kids all the time. Whenever they think that I know something and they want to know it, Dad, Dad, what, what a blah, 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 blah. They'll ask me a question, and I'll say, none you, none you business. You know, I love doing it. I know I'm eventually going to tell them, but I love just doing it. Come on, Dad. Nope, none you, none you. I just get real obnoxious about it because I don't want them to know, right? And it's a lot of fun for me. Paul is, is that guy right here. He is just saying, I mean, it doesn't matter what sentence they start. But Paul, aren't these angels? No, Jesus is bigger. But Paul, what about this law? I mean, this law is a good law. Nope, Jesus is bigger. Obnoxiously, over and over and over again, he just says, Jesus is preeminent. He lays out this huge cornerstone, which are verses 15 through 20. He says, this is the corner, this is the foundational block that we are going to speak from. Everything else he deals with later on in the letter kind of sprouts from this part. So, he makes sure there is no confusion. Big two themes he's talking about here is this. Jesus reconciles his creation in general, all of creation, and Jesus reconciles his creation specific, meaning you, meaning me. 
So think general and then you. General and specific. These are the two things. So if you look in verse 18 up there, it says this. And he is the head of the body, the church. I mean that right there. Anytime you see like the word like head or foot or hand or anything, that's very unique to Paul. No one else really uses that language, okay? He really camps out on it in 1 Corinthians 12. So if this is kind of new to you and you're not used to hearing things like you are an arm or you're a foot or an eye or a nose, pastors talk like that all the time. That's where they get that in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 12. Paul loves to use the body as a metaphor. Here he is using Jesus Christ as the head. He's the head of the body. Well, who is the body? The church. The church is the body. Now, the church isn't just a gathered people for no purpose. They're gathered around a king, right? doesn't have anything to do with a building. doesn't have anything to do with a time. doesn't have anything to do with a service. It has everything to do with a king. We gather around a king. So that's what he's talking about whenever he says head. And then he uses the word firstborn again. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. He used this last week. In the first chunk of this hymn, he said that Jesus Christ was the firstborn of all creation. Now he says he's the firstborn of the dead. Well, what does that mean? Simply this. We talked about how firstborn is not a term of sequential order. doesn't mean that he was born from the dead before everybody else. Because, I mean, didn't he raise Lazarus from the dead? That happened before he died. So Jesus wasn't the first person to ever be raised from the dead, but he is the first person to be raised again into new life. Lazarus died again. Yes, they raised him from the dead, but he did die again not too much longer after that, I'm sure. Right? But Jesus Christ is the highest in rank in being firstborn because he actually died and was raised again, resurrected into new life, which had never been done before. This is the first time. He's the first in rank. And because he did that, it can happen for us. He went before us. He is first in rank. That's what that means. That's all that means. It talks about, if you go in, it says, For in him, I think this is in verse 19, and I'm just unpacking this real quickly for you guys before we jump in. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God. You know, if you, if you pour out your... If you look at the word fullness, let me just say it this way. It doesn't mean just what it says. It does mean fullness. But if you use your dork shovel, that's what I call it. A dork shovel is where pastors can kind of get the software or use their seminary experience to kind of tell you what the Greek and Hebrew word is. Usually only dorks do that. I'm one of those dorks, and so I'm going to tell you what that word means. But listen, don't feel bad. This is easy. When I was sitting where you're sitting, and I was young, or I was trying to figure things out, anytime a pastor would say, hey, this is the Greek for this word, or this is the Hebrew for this word, it can be tempting to think in your mind, I'm never going to understand this Bible, man, because I don't know Hebrew, <laughs> and I don't know Greek, and it feels like every time a pastor tells me what the word really means, it makes me feel like I never understood what it means. I mean, do the words mean what they mean, or do they not? I mean, can we, do we really have a chance at understanding the Bible, or do you have to go and get a degree in Hebrew and Greek? The answer is no. The Bible tells you in English clearly what you need to know to be holy, to be set apart unto Christ, and to live a faithful and fruitful Christian life. You don't have to know all the Greek and Hebrew. Some nuances do come out. Some of it does become more powerful. But leave it to the dorks to do that if you don't want to do that, right? If you want to get software to help you, you want to get a book to help you do that. But you don't have to know those terms to make you, to make you a good Christian. Does that make sense? 
Okay, because that used to really bother me when I was a lot younger. This word fullness, if you do use your dork shovel, the word fullness, it doesn't... It, later on, this term would be used by the Gnostics. If you look at old Gnostic literature, the word fullness would be used a lot. And what it would describe is, it would describe all of the angels that could be worshipped pooled into one big box. Not just this angel and this middle management angel and then the CEO angels. It's all of the angels put together. The Gnostics would call that the fullness. The fullness of what can mediate man to God. So if you know that, now go back and read it. And he says that for in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's taking a shot again. He's taking another shot. He's using their language to say what you guys draw a big circle around and say this mediates you with God. We say all that's in Christ. Deal with it. All of that's in Jesus. That's what we think. right? That's what Paul is saying right there. So it's important. In fact, there's this, there's this real good theologian. His name is James Dunn. He says this. The importance of the language in this text right here is to indicate that the wholeness of God's interaction with the universe is summed up in Christ. It's a big deal. And so, one thing, I'm chasing a rabbit here. One thing we see, this is not the first time Paul has done this. We've already talked about in weeks past how Paul has pulled words from the Gnostic vocabulary. Things like spiritual understanding and knowledge and wisdom. These are words that the Eastern philosophers there in Colossae were using. These are words that the Judaizers were using. This was the words that all the heretics were using. He actually took some of those words and painted the picture of the gospel with them. So he's doing it here again and he'll do it a little bit later on. What, what can we learn in that? We can learn two big things. That God, through Paul, repeatedly using the language of the age, shows us that God is very kind to us and speaking to us in a way that we can understand. Very good to us in that. Didn't have to do that. He could have made it to where we needed a decoder ring. Made it to where we needed to know numerology. And it was all real difficult, but he did not do that. He made it easy for us. And then the second thing is, we, we need to strive as better missionaries to be better and clear. And, and speak with understanding as we paint the story of the gospel for people because that's what God did for us. It's really upon us to do for others, right? I mean, think about this. God inspired the Bible to have specific nuances in words, like, like fullness, like what we just read, that it would mean something special to the receptive hearers. Don't forget that it is a specific letter written by a man at a specific time for a specific occasion to a specific people. It can't mean for us what it never meant for them. That's just a good rule in understanding how to read the Bible. But in that, if we understand the nuances, it's, it's beautiful how God does that. It's almost like, a, like an inside joke. You're around people with an inside joke. Someone says something seemingly normal. Everyone cracks up except for you. And you're thinking that wasn't really funny. That wasn't really funny. I don't even get that. I'm not even sure if I understood that, that that would be funny. You feel like you don't understand. That's a little bit of what's going on here. Imagine a bunch of wise people just stroking their goatees as they listen to Paul speak. And you're listening, and every once in a while, they, he says something normal, and everyone goes, oh, mm, mm, yes, that's deep. But you don't do that. You're like, all he said was fullness. I don't even get that. God is so brilliant that he could speak to a certain people with nuances in the words that would carry a gravity to it, right? It's important for us to carry the story of God to people as we talk to people in a way that they can understand. 
And that might mean for us taking words of the culture, taking words of the language, and employing them, employing them to paint a better picture of the gospel. That is what missionaries do. They learn the language of the people. But listen, it's not that they just learn the language of the people. That's easy. And we all know English in here, right? But you have to know the, the idols that they deal with. You need to know the struggles that they have as a people. What are the hopes that they have of a people? You really have to crawl inside who a people are. That's what makes us better missionaries. That's what Paul did here. He knew all of that. Their hopes, their everything, their past, their idols. And he used the language. So listen, when you talk to people, and I know you do, whenever you talk to people, and all of us are in a different spectrum of how we do this, okay? Some of us get to the point a little faster. Some of us struggle with that. Um, some of us are trying to learn what the gospel sounds like even coming out of our own mouth, right? And so it feels odd. But as you talk to people about the story of God, let me just tell you, the best way you can do this is to really retell God's story with their story written into it. Make it relevant to them. Make it relevant to them. Listen, I heard the gospel um, hundreds of times growing up. Hundreds. Had to be hundreds of times. And it never really meant that much to me. It didn't. But one night, I remember, true as I, I was sitting in a living room on a fireplace, and I knew what my next 50 years was going to look like. I knew how much money I was going to make. I knew what my wife was going to look like, who she was going to be. Probably tell you what my kids were going to look like. I knew where I was going to live. I knew what my reputation was going to be. It was all mapped out. It was so boringly predictable. And I was scared to death. I was scared to death. And that, what had happened was, it wasn't that I wasn't going to make much money. I was going to make a whole lot of money. And I was still scared to death. And the reason was, the reason was, is because I saw the fullness of my own little personal mission painted out. And it was very dissatisfying. It could not bring to me what being on God's mission would do. I was so at ends... That was my sin. That was my tragedy. That was my thing I was wrestling with. And then someone had told the gospel story, but it was in the realm of God's mission. God's mission is bigger than your mission. Your mission will maybe bring you riches. I remember him talking. Your mission will probably bring you reputation. It will probably bring you this. But if that's the case, this is what you're struggling with. And this is what you're struggling And he was just reading my mail. I'm thinking, this is it. He's telling God's story, but I'm in it. I'm in it. He's nailing me. And I could not wait for him to quit preaching. Not because he was bad, but because that night I had to get right. I had to get right. I had to get right with an ever-living God. And give up on my little private mission, which was going to produce me all the things that I'd ever wanted to, but a boringly predictable, stale, inept mission, purpose. And I had to give myself over to Christ's. So whenever you're talking to people about the gospel, tell them where their addictions came from. Take them back to the garden. Tell them where the lust came from that they struggle with. Tell them where the hate, the depression, the abuse, the fact that they were molested. Tell them where that came from. Paint a picture about what sin has done to mankind ever since the garden. What Christ has done. Take them through and, and share it with them. Make it relevant. Now, that is a lot more efficient than just walking up and saying, Hey, brother, Jesus saves. And walking off like you actually did anything. Now listen... By saying Jesus saves, people will get saved. Because, like I said in my prayer, God is the one that does all the spiritual maneuvering. The gospel is what saves people. It's not all on how we present it, but that does not give us a license to be lazy and sloppy about how we present it, right? In fact, we see the very opposite here with Paul. 
Paul went to great lengths. He shows up to Athens at the Areopagus, and he uses their version of Stephen Hawking, their version of Lady Gaga, their version of everyone that's huge at the time, whatever it be, and he actually uses their lyrics and their poetry to paint the gospel picture. He wasn't lazy about it. He didn't just walk up and say, hey, Jesus saves, I'm out. And just, and just say, hey, it's up to them, man. I'm reformed. If they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved. That's not what he did. So there is a better way to preach. Okay, that was a rabbit trail. I'm coming back now. I'm sorry. I did see that in the, <laughs> in the text, though, so I wanted to jump on it while I had the chance. So he doesn't just reconcile everything generally. He does reconcile things specifically. And that's you and that's me. This is where he switches gears. Now he's left the song. He's not singing anymore. The music has stopped. And these are his first two words. Verse 21. And you. You. And you. He gets very specific. Who once were alienated and hostile in mind in doing evil deeds. It's easy for us to go, man, not me. I mean, we don't like to think of ourselves as evil before Christ met us. We might think of ourselves as lost. We might think of ourselves as drifting, searchers, you know, but to think of ourselves as morally corrupt and outside the camp and total hostility towards God, we think, no, that wasn't us. It wasn't me. I was neutral before God met me. I didn't hate Jesus. No, you did. That's the whole point. The thing is, is your mind is hostile towards God. Your deeds could not help but to be evil. That's the way we are. But Luke, what about the nice people? What about the people that are really nice? No, their, their mind, they were hostile towards God. What, what about the people that give a lot of money to cancer research, you know? I mean, no. Their mind, if, they, if they are not a son or a daughter of the king, their minds are hostile against the king. It's just, that's just how it works. What about those who are loyal to their own private religion? You can go on. Save kittens from trees. What, you know, save the seals. Listen, the deal is, is if they are not a son of the king, they are going to be hostile towards God. That was you, and that was me. We had declared war. You see, these terms are terms of quarreling. To be hostile is, is a warfare term. To be alienated means to be outside the camp. Estranged, really, is what that word means. To be evil just means to be totally and morally corrupt. Right? To be evil. These words, they signify a skirmish. There has to be a skirmish before there's reconciliation. Right? But once, re- and that's what reconciliation means. It means that, where, where I'll use you as an example, because you're not my son and you're up on the front row. If me and Jonathan were in a skirmish with each other, reconciliation is us not being enemies anymore, but being friends. Now we're friends. We were at war, now we're not. That's the idea of reconciliation, right? Except when God reconciles us, that's not a Godward move, that's a manward move, okay? So we don't go, God, well, hey, we're pretty cool with you if you meet us halfway. No, He did all the work. He came all the way to us, right? Reconciliation is from Him towards us, not the other way around. And so as He reconciles us to Him, peace is made. We're friends. That's actually how we're presented to God, if you can believe that. He goes on to say this. He says, He has now reconciled us in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. This is huge, huge, huge here. 
This is how you're presented to God. If you love Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, a son, a daughter of the Most High King, this is how you will be presented to God when the end of ends come. You will be holy, which means to be set apart, not polluted. You will be blameless, which means there will be an inability to place blame on you. You will be above reproach, which means that no one can bring a reproach or be critical of you. Now, how can that be? It's because you're buried in Christ. God verifiably is looking at His own Son, and you are lost in Him. It's not like a turbo booster was put on you, and now you're super Christian, and now you're just all of a sudden blameless and holy and whatever. No, you're buried in Christ. That's who He is. It's not who we are even today. I have blame on me today, but not as far as God sees. That's how that works. And so you have this three things being traded in. You've got being alienated and hostile and evil, being switched now to being holy and blameless and above reproach. Now this is the deal. This is the meat of what I wanted to get to today. I'm going to get in and out of this as fast as I can, but I do want to talk about this. This model of reconciliation, right, what Jesus did on the cross for you and me, That is our model in community for reconciliation here with other brothers and other sisters. We we literally take our cues from Jesus Christ on this, okay? Not a good book. There are good books out there on this, though. But we take our cues from Jesus Christ in, in the steps that he marched. So, if that's true, what are some mistakes that we can make in reconciliation? Where... Where can we hit the wrong exit ramps? Where can we really mess this up and not show the world what reconciliation truly looks like? I'm going to give you a couple. One is that we can really hold and not give forgiveness. If we hold on to and not give forgiveness, let me tell you, you're not allowed to do that as a Christian. You're not even allowed. Christ didn't do that to you, right? He did not hold his forgiveness to you. He did not just hug it for a little while. We give it up. We give forgiveness. We we help that part of reconciliation. Listen, sometimes you forgive and then you flip around and invest in that same relationship. Not all the time. There are going to be some times where you forgive somebody for a crime and you can no longer have any kind of relationship with that person. That's just the way it is. If a, if a kid's molested or if you have some sort of a huge blowout or some sort of beating, some sort of abuse, that's a deal to where you can forgive and you do need to forgive on that. You don't even have a right to hold on to your hurt and your pain then. Because as bad as that is, we we killed Jesus, okay? We murdered the Son of God. Nothing is going to trump that. That's the whole idea. That's the whole idea on forgiveness. And so those things, as horrible and as horrendous as they are, as nasty as they are, you can still forgive, but it doesn't mean that you ever have to trust that whole situation again. Okay? I'm not talking about that right now. I'm talking about the other 99.99% of reasons that make us foul with each other. Things you said that ticked me off. Hey, I think you're a jerk because you did this. Well, you're a jerk because you did that. I'm talking about that in this moment. The things that most often come up in community. For us, a lot of times forgiving is a good start. It starts the process of reconciliation. Also, we need to flip around and invest in that relationship. Hunker down in that relationship. Right? This is what we want to do. Why do we hold on to our forgiveness and we not want to give it? Why do we do that? Because it puts us in the driver's seat. We're in control. And as long as I can stay a victim, 
then you are subservient to my emotional needs. You have to meet my emotional needs until I release control of this and I'm no longer a victim. That's what we want to do. We don't want to forgive them because we think it's a sign of weakness. We think that if I forgive this person, they're just going to do it again. Or if I forgive this person, they're going to think that what I'm saying is that it's okay that you did that, which none of those are true. But we hold on to it because we want control. That's really inside of all. That's my default. Jesus Christ didn't do this, though. And let me tell you also what he didn't do. He wasn't slow to the punch in doing this. He was really quick. He didn't start reconciliation with you and with me like a week after the cross or a month. He didn't sit and think about it for a while. He didn't do it even three minutes later. He did it right in the fat middle of his pain. While the spikes were going in, while he hung there, while his breaths were being counted as his last, while those were happening, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Reconciliation started in the middle of his pain. Boy, that's strong for us. That's strong for us that that Matt can make me mad, that I can be able to forgive him in the middle of that, in the middle of the crime. That's something that I'm not there. I've got to grow in that. That's a difficult but, but we take our cues from Christ. He leads us in that. Right? So, he lets go of it in the middle of pain. And he doesn't just say that, he doesn't just smooth over it. You know how we can do this thing sometimes? I can. Hey, it's alright, don't worry about it. I forgive you, man. But really inside you don't. <laughs> really inside you don't really forgive them. You just kind of say it because we're, I'm passive aggressive. And if you're like me, you just want the whole thing to go away, you know? You don't want the pain to be there anymore. So I'll say it's cool, you'll say it's cool, we'll go about our business, but I probably won't hang out with you anymore. <laughs> and I'm definitely not going to trust you ever again. Right? So we're not investing in the relationship at all. That's just what, that's reality. That's the way we do it. Christ didn't do that either, did he though? He forgave and he really genuine forgave. It was a true, genuine thing that happened. He wasn't fake about it. It's very important. I'm going to read something to you. It's not going to be on the screen. Um, This is a controversial passage in the Bible. I'll tell you that right now. Um, It doesn't have to be, but it is. It says this in Matthew 18, if you wanted to look it up later. It says, Therefore, this is Jesus teaching, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, that's a lot of money. I'm not, I didn't pour my dork shovel out for that, so I can't tell you exactly how much that would be today. That's a typical pastor thing to do. I should have done that this morning. But it's a lot of money. I will tell you that the whole idea behind that, the 10,000 talents, is that it's an impossible debt. It's an impossible debt. It's such an exorbitant, it's such an, a, a huge debt that it cannot be paid in one lifetime. It's more than this man is even willing to pay or even possibly can pay. That's the whole idea. Massive debt. Keep that in mind. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. What? So his kids, his wife, why the big penalty? Because the debt was really big. Huge penalty for a huge debt. So track along with me here. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him of the debt. Boy, this is huge. Forgave him of the debt. Just because he pleaded. 
It's because he begged. Now listen, this is a parable. There's, there's a couple things you need to know as you read parables in the Bible. One is, is the reason that Jesus told these parables is to put you guys in a storytelling mind of, or way of thinking. You usually try to find yourself in the parable. Which character am I? Always ask yourself when you read a parable, what character am I in this parable? Another thing is, is you never want to take all the little details very specifically. That's not the goal of these. You never even want to get your doctrine from parables. That's not what Jesus was doing. It's almost like, you know, how movies will be going in a certain direction, and out of nowhere they take this hairpin. You're like, whoa, what just happened? These parables had that, that... moment in them. It'll be going on and going on and going on. It's just a very predictable story. Okay, he owed a lot of money. Okay, he's in trouble. He's getting thrown in jail. Wait a minute. He's being forgiven. Well, that's crazy. That's a hairpin. Anytime you see a hairpin turn in a parable, that's the teaching moment. That was the moment when the people listening to Jesus teach would go, wait a minute. Are you telling me that... Okay, that's where we learn. So as we go through this, that's what I want you to keep in mind. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. It's like a Snickers bar. Okay? Owed him a Snickers bar. Hey, where's my Snickers bar? You owe me one. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, he choked him. What a jerk. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what he had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. That's pretty jacked up. I mean, he just got forgiven of a huge debt, and he freaked out over a Snickers bar, and he's choking this guy, and he's going to get back to the king. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which is an impossible debt to pay. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What? That last line sends you reeling. Luke, does that mean we could lose our salvation? This is obviously talking about salvation. Does that mean that we can have that grace given to us, rescinded from us? No. It doesn't mean that at all. You can't lose your salvation. You can't. Paul is very emphatic on this. What it means is, is this servant was most likely never saved. The reason being is because you can't, you can't not forgive somebody if God has forgiven you. We see it all the time in the Scripture. That's not the first time that's mentioned in the passages of Scripture anyway. But if I can't forgive Jonathan for something smaller than killing Jesus, <laughs> if I can't forgive you for something smaller than that, how much of God's forgiveness did I even embrace? How much do I really understand? Most likely not any. If I can't get my arms around the fact of what I've been forgiven for, it will show mostly in the fact that I can't forgive somebody else for a much lesser offense. That's what's being taught here. That's what this parable is teaching. This guy, he never even got it. He never even understood forgiveness, exemplified by the fact that he couldn't even offer it. That's the whole point of the scripture. That's the massive hairpin. That's what he's aiming to teach us. scary. You know, we're tempted... And I'm with you. 
I don't like getting burned again. It feels irresponsible to forgive somebody, to start the reconciliation process and then have them flip around and do it again. People don't like that. You don't like that. And so it's hard for us to just forgive people if we think we're really just giving them a free hall pass. They're just going to keep doing what they want to do. It makes it tough. But once again, this is forgiveness. It's the beginnings of reconciliation. So, I mean, but Luke, what if they do keep burning me? What if they, could, what if they do keep messing up? Well, so what? You mess up. I mean, this is what Jesus said. This is right before that big teaching, that big parable. This is, it says this, And Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Like seven times? Now, Peter thought that was a lot, just so you know. When Peter said seven times, he was exaggerating. He was being a little whiny. I mean, gosh, like how many, Jesus? Like seven? He was probably expecting Jesus to say, well... Yeah, somewhere, maybe not seven, Peter, maybe like four, you know. Maybe that fifth time you could really lay the wood to him, but, you know, seven's kind of... But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, no, 70 times seven. That's a bunch. Now, 70 times seven, 490, does not mean that the 491st time they wrong you, you could drop the bomb on them. It doesn't mean that. That's not What it means is those numbers, seven, all the time you see that in Scripture, think completeness. That's a number of completeness. That is a, as a way of oversaying that it's infinity, Peter. It's infinity. As long as they keep coming for forgiveness, you give it. You give it. Your forgiveness should not run out because my forgiveness, Peter, is not going to run out. That's the whole idea behind it. Okay? Another thing I think we can do wrong, I think we see reconciliation as a sign of weakness. I think that's because we see collisions as a sign of weakness. I think if, if you guys saw me in a point of collision and fighting with somebody, or you saw leaders or two of yourselves fighting, it could be seen as a weaker moment. You see a spouse fighting with uh, his or her spouse. You can see that is a weak moment because there's a collision. But listen, if there's no collision, there can be no reconciliation. Jesus Christ is magnified and glorified in the reconciliation. It is a gospel portrait for us, right? If you have it anywhere in your mind that a healthy family or a healthy marriage never has collisions, you're snowed. You're totally snowed. That is not because passive-aggressive people and plastic smiles, they never built anything healthy. They just didn't do it. To be genuine, to be vulnerable, to be honest, we're going to have collisions. It's going to happen. Yeah, but I never saw my parents collide, Luke. I mean, I've heard people tell me, Luke, I've never seen my parents fight. They never fought. They ne- and they say it as a point of pride. If they never fought, brother, that means that they've never even seen reconciliation with them. How can you see reconciliation modeled with your mom and dad if they never got in a fight? Besides the point, how are you going to do it with your bride one day? How are you going to do it with your husband one day? You're going to get in the, in the throes of something. You're not even going to know how to do it because it's never been modeled. Collisions are important in community because how else is the world going to see it? It's a gospel portrait. They see love, humility, forgiveness, forbearance. They see all of these things. It paints a beautiful picture of the gospel. People need to see that. I needed to see that. Man, I came into the church. I didn't know what that was like. I was Mr. Passive Aggressive. Mr. 
I, I mean, if I felt uncomfortable, like the air was leaving the room, I would want to leave the room. You know what I'm saying? It's important. Don't run from collisions. They provoke the gospel. Don't run from them. Do it right, but do it. Collide. I'm telling you. I'm, I'm telling you as a community, if there's something wrong, pull the dude aside. Pull her aside. Talk about it. Do it right. Do it with humility. Do it with love and patience, but don't avoid it. My goodness. Reconciliation will never happen if you do. Right? So, I do think that and this will be the last reason I give you. I'm taking longer than I wanted to. We're all so slow. Let me just tell you how slow we are to do it. Once again, Christ did it immediately. He did it on the cross in the midst of pain. But the Bible is very, very emphatic about how fast we are to reconcile. There is a, a speed to which we should do it. It says this in Matthew 5.23. It says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you? Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. That's pretty crazy because he's saying that right in the middle of your worship, there's nothing more important than reconciliation. And how many times in the Bible do you see something that is more important than worshiping God? How many times? Because I don't find very many. The reason is, is because reconciliation is a worship to God. So, I mean, if you're, the deal is, is if I'm like, and I do raise my hands, so if I'm, ra- if I'm worshiping God and I'm raising my hands and I'm taking communion with the other hand and I'm pushing my tithe check out there with my left foot and I'm like doing as much worship as I can simultaneously. I'm like ultra worshiping. I'm doing everything at the same time. That is not as cool, as valuable, and as true as pulling a guy aside and saying, look, man, I know you've got a problem with me. Can we work this out? What this is saying right here, what Christ is saying is, is get it done. Reconciliation is the most beautiful thing, is the most beautiful way to worship than anything we can just do by raising our hands, giving money, taking communion, listening, preaching. Reconciling is something very beautiful, very important to Christ. And he says, don't take very long to do it. Get it done. Get it done fast. So... I'm skipping the whole last chunk of this because I, I want to focus on this one, this one thing. I want to ask you. I want to ask you first. Some of you might not be reconciled to Christ yourself. You might not understand the very fact that you, if you are not what people would call a Christian, if you're not what people would call saved, then in your mind you are hostile towards God. That's how God sees you. He sees you as one declaring war on Him. Okay? You, you don't want to make the mistake of thinking that you're in neutral. There is no such thing as morally neutral. There is no such thing as being morally neutral. There, it's a long story and I won't go into the story, but to skip ahead into the middle of the story, when I was in college in campus ministry, I had snuck into a witches meeting, a coven meeting, <laughs> it's a long story, on a college campus, okay? And they went around in a circle talking about what their, their demonic power was giving them as far as a message for the rest of the group, okay? And so it went from person to person to person to person to person. And when it got to me, I stood up and I said, I have a message from you as well, from the spiritual one that I call God. And I told them 
you know, basically the gospel. And in a nice way, I was real kind to them. You know, it was a, it was a kind portrait. It was a very non-confrontational portrait. Okay, that's what I did. They jumped in and they said, oh, Luke, we believe all of that. We believe that Jesus was around. We be-. And, they, and what they, they tried to spin it, what I was saying. I said, no, 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 stop. It's important. I'd rather you hate me than misunderstand me right now. You've declared war on God. You are not morally neutral. You've declared war on a living God and he is not amused. He is not humored by your arrogance and your pride. You were hostile in mind, and you were full of evil deed. And so I had to be a little bit more confrontational. I didn't want to start that way, but it did get that way. The thing is, is it doesn't take a witch to be that. You can be a nice person. You can give a junk load of money to the church. You can do all kinds of things. If you are not a Christian, you need to be reconciled. The only thing that can do that, the only mediator, it's not an angel, it's not a law, it's not a philosophy, it's not Scientology, it's not a book, it's not any weird thing out there. The only one that can reconcile you is the one who is perfect, who is our Lord, who is Jesus Christ. That's it. It's the only way it's getting done. So if that's you, once we start worshiping here in a minute, so we start worshiping with, with music, and the communion table, as we start going through that, that's your opportunity. That's your opportunity to not delay. Christ did not delay in his reconciliation towards you. Don't delay in receiving that reconciliation from him. Don't delay in doing that. For the rest of you, right now, as far as you know, as far as you know, is there any quarrel you have with somebody? Maybe even in this room. Any quarrel that you think someone has with you, maybe in this room, that is still standing, that is not dealt with, that is not pacified, let me tell you, it is more important to get that done than to sit here and sing and raise your hands and take communion. Just like it says in Matthew, stop, pause, worship is important, reconciling is huge. Reconcile, then come back and worship. It's not saying either or, it's saying both and, just reconcile first. There's a speed that needs to happen. Is there a rift that can be fixed? Let me ask you just preemptively, is it possible for you, and this will be my last question, is it possible for you to enter into a community like Legacy where there's going to be errors, where there's going to be jacked upness, where someone's going to have a wrong day, Hey, I'll ratchet it up a notch. Is it possible for you to do church and be in a community where you see problems with me? Where you see problems with Kevin? Their wives? Their kids? Where you see issues with us as people? Is it going to be possible for you to call this home? Or is that going to be an issue? You need to know. You need to know that we are flesh. We have sin. We are on the same track that everybody else is. We're being sanctified day by day, inwardly renewed, just like you are. And believe me, it's just as much a fight for me and all of us in leadership as it is for you. We are imperfect as leadership. We're going to fail you as leadership. We're going to make bad decisions. We're going to say things at the wrong time, at the wrong place, with the wrong motive. We won't even know that we're hurting some of your feelings. I know I've already done it. I guarantee there's people right now that I've said something to, Kevin has said something to that might have hurt your feelings, or I didn't do something, or I didn't say something and it hurt your feelings. Reconciliation paints the gospel. Man, it's one thing to preach about it all the time, to really do it, 
to really demonstrate it, oh, it's such a whole different deal. The world doesn't see that enough. That the world would see a church demonstrating it as much as they preach it, the world would see a different church. You're going to see errors in us. Can you embrace that in us? Can you do that? It's important. You know, you can go to churches where the pastors will look perfect. They will. And you'll never see a mistake. You'll never see an error. You'll never even get that close. And you could have the perfect leadership, but you might not have community. (laughs) If you get into community, you start having dinner with people, you're going to start seeing some things. You start seeing me with my hair down, if I have hair. You start seeing me with my hair down, you might not like the Luke you see so much. You might see first gear Luke, not doing so good Luke, tired Luke, right? Can you still love me? Can you still love this church? Can you still love just community? overall. That is my appeal to you.